Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello, and welcome to Garden Success. We are glad you're listening today, and we would hope that you would be a caller today as well. You know, this is a call-in show. You can ask the kinds of questions you might have, and I promise somebody else is probably going to have the same kind of question uh, when when you start thinking about it. Uh, I find that's often the case. Our phone number is 979 845 5689-845-5689. And if you would like to email, the one one nice thing about email is that you can send a picture. Uh, what I would recommend is uh, if you would email and then we could uh, talk as well, that would be helpful because uh, at least then I'd have the picture to know what you're talking about. But that's not required, of course. Uh, the email is gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. And I wanted to, I've been thinking about something last week, I think it was last week, uh, Brian had emailed about, with some questions about Rose Rosette. And the the more I think about it, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on that. The uh, Sometimes you will hear folks say that you shouldn't plant roses because now we have Rose Rosette disease. Uh, or maybe it's coming from Dallas. Well, first of all, the disease is here. Uh, it's, it's already arrived. Um <clears throat> I would, uh, I would say that you should still plant roses. Uh, this is no reason not to. There are a lot of diseases that could show up and cause problems, but we still plant the plants because when it's time to deal with it, we deal with it. And so in the case of rose rosette, I think the most important thing is recognizing what it looks like. And you can go online uh, to learn more about it, to learn to identify it. Um, if you if you see that in your roses, well, then you could, you know, call us up or, or just, you know, I'll tell you what to do right now. But uh, if you see it in your roses, then you just remove that bush and get it out of there. And if you have roses around it, chances are they're going to be having it pretty quick anyway because it a little insect uh, moves from one plant to another and can spread it, uh, not great distances, but some distance, especially depending on the direction of the wind. Uh, but rose rosette is is one of those things that it's hit and miss. And uh, you may have roses for the next 50 years and never see it in your yard. And that's what we would hope. Uh, but we want more people to know what it looks like because, well, here's why. If you know what it looks like, then you can act promptly. And if your neighbor has a problem and you see this rose, you can tell them, I think this is what it is, call your county extension office. Uh, because think of the infected plant as like a typhoid Mary, if you will. Uh, so when you have an infected plant around your other plants, they're going to get it. I mean, it, then it's so close by that they're going to get it. Uh, it if you know what it looks like and you can get those out promptly, well, that's a, that is a sanitation measure. Uh, it's it's removing the infected, the source of uh, the uh, virus to from your yard, and and so I, I have I have roses and I would plant more roses. I no question about it. Uh, it's not like if you plant a rose, it's just going to show up out of nowhere. It, it's got to come from something. 
Uh, it, it could come from uh, your neighbor gets a rose and they get it over there, or for example, but no reason to stop planting roses. Rose rosette is, is certainly a disease of concern. Uh, Texas AgriLife uh, is doing some things to uh, help uh, work out a solution, our Texas A&M. In the horticulture department, Dr. David Byrne uh, has been breeding roses, and one of the goals of the program is to look for resistance to rose rosette and create a rose that's resistant. That would be very nice. Now, anytime you try to um, breed your way out of a plant problem, it takes time. I mean, it's, it's not, especially a woody ornamental like roses. Um, the um, uh, Just the time of, you know, you cross, you plant a little seed, and you wait for that rose seed to come up and become a bush so you can actually evaluate it, you know, at that point. Uh, that's a long-term thing. I guess the only thing I can think of is, would be longer. Uh, in, in our world around here would be pecans. Uh, pecan breeding is a very long-term thing. Uh, to be able to evaluate and know whether a pecan is going to be worthwhile. But anyway, uh, yeah, keep planting roses. Just learn what it looks like. And the website I was uh, is talking about earlier, is it's an, it's an easy one. Rose Rosette, that has two T's in it, dot org. Rose Rosette dot org. And you can see pictures of it. We're fortunate we live on the doorstep of the state plant clinic, uh, here it's on West Campus and uh, so you know if you ever have a question you do have that option they charge for an analysis but uh, when it's something as important as a disease like this you, it would be good to know yes or no do I have it well you're listening to Garden Success and our phone number is 979-845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess.org I want to talk about some things that are going on in the community, and we're on, we're on the doorstep of June, so uh, everything else that I see coming here is in June. On Thursday, June 1st, the Post Oak chapter of the Native Plant Society of Texas is going to have a program, and uh, it is entitled Soils, Oils, and a Very Endemic Mint, Monarda Viridissima. I hope you wrote all that down. <laughs> the the uh, Native Plant Society of Texas, we have the Post Oak chapter here. You can go online to their website. It's NPSOT, Native Plant Society of Texas, npsot.org slash WP, as in Paul, and slash Post Oak. That'll get you right there. They meet out at Lick Creek Park. Uh, it'll be June Thursday, June 1st at 6 p.m., by the way. And if you're wondering, what is Monarda Veridissima. Well, walk outside and drive down the road and you'll see it. Uh, I grew up calling it horse mint, uh, and it makes a great honey, by the way. Uh, but um, it, it's kind of showing up this time of year in a way where people would actually notice it. Sometimes it's just white. Uh, sometimes it kind of has a purplish hue to it. Uh, and uh, like all mint fam, well, like most mint family things, it has an aromatic foliage. Uh, and uh, I think uh, you can Google it and see what it looks like. But uh, it is a cool thing. I, I've often thought it would be neat to collect the most purple of the Mandarda Veridissimas each year and continue to develop and develop and just have a little more range in that, in that particular species. Uh, so that's just a thought. But soils, oils, and a very endemic mint. 
Native Plant Society of Texas on Saturday, June 3rd, here at the Leach Teaching Gardens at Texas A&M is a uh, open, um, uh, let's see, the Gardens Summer Celebration. It's a Gardens Summer Celebration. It is going to be from 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. And it will be an opportunity to go out and tour the gardens. Uh, that, by the way, they're turning five years old. And it's a birthday celebration. And we, they're going to celebrate uh, with those of us in the community. And it'll be, uh, uh, you walk through, there'll be some different uh, exhibits and, and things, stuff for kids to do maybe. Our, our master gardeners are doing a little, uh, little uh, demonstration on making arrangements from the plants in your landscape. And who knows, they might even have some things for children to do out there as well. But that's Saturday, June 10th. Excuse me. Yeah, June 3rd, Saturday, June 3rd at the Leach Teaching Gardens, which is on West Campus. And if you've never been there, here's your excuse to go. It is a wonderful place. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go to the phones and we're going to talk to Catherine. Hello, Catherine. <clears throat> Hello. Nice to talk to you. I might be considered a frequent caller because I'm that's just okay. learning gardening. Well, that's um, why we're here. Yes, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm having my first trial with a redbud tree, and it's doing great. Um, it was planted with great care and attention and large size hole, whatever. It was a young, obviously, redbud that the nursery had pinched off every nub where tried to start a new branch. So it was going to have an umbrella shape, just uh, leaves at the top. Since I've planted it, it has set forth two sprouts right at the base that already have leaves on them. I don't know. They're like eight inches long. Okay. I planted the tree originally with that umbrella shape in mind because I'm just trying to get some shade from this dreadful summer sun question for you is if I allow those sprouts right at ground level to develop into branches and I guess presumably then trunks like uh, redbuds often have is that going to slow down the trunk from putting out the maximum leaves it can achieve yes it will um let me drill down a little bit on the umbrella comments you're making. Did the the nursery that sold it to you say it will form an umbrella? Or is no, that that's, just, that's just you? I'm saying that because the only branches were right at the terminal okay. trunk. Okay. No, I would, I would focus everything on that um, and, mm -hmm. and try to get that to grow. But how high is it right now? How tall? How tall is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, taller than me. Um, okay. Seven feet. All right. Well, yeah, I would just focus on that. And uh, when you prune those off, prune them as close to where they attach as you can. You know, if you leave a little stub, that stub has has buds on it, and they're just uh -huh. all, they're all going to sprout, and you're just going to be fighting it like that over time. Okay. But uh, yeah, prune them close. Uh, if it's not in a mulched area, then I would clear any grass around it away so that it, at least for two feet on all sides, it, there's no grass, no competition, just a decomposing mulch like the forest floor, which is where that, that yeah. plant is okay. from. Okay. Okay. Yep. A good soaking as needed. 
when when I don't know if you said when it was planted. Uh, How long? Question: Two months ago, maybe. Okay, so it's got March, a very, late March. Yeah, so it's going to have a very limited root system still. Uh, and yeah. This first summer, it's all about getting the roots established in the soil, so there's some resiliency in that plant. Right now, you know, the roots are very close to the base of the plant still as they slowly work out, and so it's real critical to keep that spot moist but not soggy. Uh, and so that's a little bit of a trick, but you can do it. And uh, uh, j just remember that I would say picture a four foot wide circle, two feet on each side of the plant. That's the area that you want to make sure doesn't go dry. Now, it, it's fine to water wider, but that's the area where the majority of the roots are now and, and where you need to make sure it, it doesn't go dry uh, so that you can get it through this first summer. So you mean continually moist, like rather than watering deep once a week, go ahead and do it several times a week? Well, so let's not talk about how many times because your soil type and and uh, how you water can affect that. You just you just want to not assume that it has enough roots out in the soil now to survive the first summer. So yeah. the the cylinder that came out of the container that you bought it in, that's mm -hmm. where 100% of the roots were there when it was planted in March, and they're working their way out. But still, it's depending on that area. To stay moist so I would just say water is needed to keep that moist and you can dig down you know I it's so hard to say do that this often or this long or this much if you just dig down like two or three inches and feel the soil you'll know when it's moist or not and okay that, that'll kind of so the same you. is for a pot plant just stick your finger down yes. a couple of inches yeah okay. and and actually that pot plant uh, statement is a is pretty good analogy because when you put a plant in the ground, you say, well, it's not a container plant. Well, for a while it is, because uh, it still has the roots <laughs> in the same spot. Yeah. So imagine you bought it from a garden center, you bought it, let's say, this month, and they're watering it twice a day just to keep it alive and looking good and healthy. And then you take it and put it in the ground, and by noon of the first day, it may have pumped the water out of that whole root system because it's still Good point. in the pot. Mm -hmm. uh, does that make mm -hmm. sense? I know I'm kind of yeah. belaboring this, no, but I, exactly. everybody it needs to hear this. Sense. Yeah, everybody needs to hear this. So now drowning it is not good. And so in a clay mm -hmm. soil, it that clay is going to hold water. So the planting hole now is like an underground bathtub in, to a sense. And I don't well, know how they planted it. <laughs> I don't know what they did. But th this is the just... The base down deep, um, a foot deep or more, is sand, so I hope it drains well. Well, it should, but uh, anyway, y you are the the one who determines when it needs to be watered because you can go out there and check it. If it's growing in more sun, full sun, or it's growing part shade, the soil type, a lot of things, the temperature certainly. Of course, humidity. I've noticed that with my pot plants. Yeah. Depending on how organic the soil is in the pot, it needs totally different amount of water than the, the one that's not so organic. Well, but that brings me to a, a follow-up question, and I don't want to take too much of your time. Okay. When I planted it, I put root stimulator around the existing roots, and I'm wondering now, as I water it, is there any point in adding, it's actually powder, root stimulator while I water it to soak into the soil? 
Well, it, it won't hurt anything, but I, I would say, you know, if you didn't already have it, I'd say, no, nah, don't go buy any now. Uh, it's probably not going to make a big difference, but it won't hurt anything. Okay. Okay. All right. I appreciate all your advice. All right, Catherine. Thank you for the call. Our phone number is 979-845-5689 and email gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Let's go to the phones now and we are going to talk with Syed. Well, hello, Syed. How are you, Kev? I'm well, thank you. Good. Good. Last time I spoke to you, Kev, I asked you about uh, a remedy for the, for the uh, yopan that is uh, running along the fence uh, of a few acres that I have. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have suggested uh, to use this compound, uh, which is sold under the name of uh, Remedy. Uh, I bought it at uh, the co-op and uh, mixed it with diesel, and it works like a charm. It okay. really did the job, and uh, it, uh, it took care of it. It actually it leaves uh, a sort of a burnt-out kind of a, appearance for a right. while, but hopefully over a period of time, uh, that will be replaced by natural, you know, wild grass, but not yes. uh, your pond. Sure. So it, it worked very well, and I think, uh, you know, uh, this is something which I think the other people in my life know also, that it, it did work very well for me. Okay. Well, I hope it's not a huge surprise that my advice proved true, but, <laughs> but so, I'm, I am definitely Your advice not, is always true. Yeah, I'm <laughs> definitely right. not horticulturally infallible by any stretch of the map. There's, there's more that I don't know than I know. In fact, someone said the uh, part of being smart is knowing what you're dumb at, and <laughs> I, I have found over the years that I'm pretty dumb about a lot of things that I didn't even know existed. No, uh, I, I can imagine that when you're in a position to be making recommendations not 100 percent of the recommendations work yep. but if it if they work most of the time even if they don't work all the time but most of the time you are good enough <laughs> and and you you are a good advisor and i have benefited your from your advice a, a number of times and I appreciate that. So I just wanted to tell you that what you suggested worked very well. Okay. Thank you, Syed. I appreciate that. You, you are very welcome. Thank so, you very much. Yeah. Bye-bye now. So, so Syed mentioned yeah. a product called Remedy, and I just want to be real clear. The ingredient that is what I generally put out on the air, and that is triclopyr, T-R-I-C-L-O-P-Y-R. Now, Remedy, if you buy a, a farmer-type quantity of remedy, you're going to spend a lot of money on a big jug and you'll never even scratch the surface on using it. Uh, but you can buy over the garden counter, uh, over the in the garden centers, you can buy something that may be called poison ivy killer or brush killer. There used to be a brush be gone. It's, I don't think it's there anymore. But when you look at the ingredient and you see tricolpyr, that's the one. And he mentioned diesel. Uh, diesel, when, when farmers are doing brush control, they'll sometimes, uh, and this comes from AgriLife recommendations, they'll mix diesel in with the product they're putting on because it sticks. You know, diesel is an oil. And, and uh, so when you mix a little of that in, it helps the ingredient to soak in to the trunk tissues. Or if you uh, cut the, let's say it's a, a, a poison ivy vine, you cut it off and you got a little stump there, you can put the triclopyr right on that. Uh, and so that, that's what he was mentioning. Uh, let's go back to the phones now. Again, the number 
845-5689, and let's talk to Ann. Hello, Ann. Hi, Skip. Uh, a couple years ago, after the terrible freeze, I uh, called in and uh, about a lacy elm that had lost a huge chunk of bark that was probably about nine foot long and about a uh, foot, foot wide. Yes. And so well, I had uh, an arborist come out, and they stimulated the rivets and that kind of thing. And it's still surviving. It lost some of its, uh, many of its big branches. But um, over the last couple of years since that time, um, the shoots have come up. So I have what it looks like a bush that's probably about so four or five foot wide and maybe five foot tall. And it looks very nice. And it's coming out of the roots. Now, is it helpful to the main trunk uh, to have these uh, coming out of the, the roots? Is it, or, you know, I mean, it makes a nice bush, but yeah. I just didn't know if it was harming the tree. Uh, I, I, my guess is that they're, they're sprouts from the base of the trunk. And it may yes. be, you know, right where the root attaches. But, um, you know... That species is not something that's going to stay a small bush. And if you allow a lot of trunks to grow, uh, you, they're going to break and fall in a storm. The, the attachment just won't be as good as you want it to be. Uh, so I would, you know, I can't see the plant, but uh, if it has a reasonable amount of good life in it, I would, uh, I'd consider. Now you're talking about the main tree. Yeah, the main, the main tree, right. Mm -hmm. I would, I would prefer to stay with that. Uh, do you do you still have strips down the bark where the two sides of the living bark haven't closed back and joined together to cover up the interior wood? Okay. Now, would, would that look like the initial bark, or would it look a little different? Well, when when this happens, uh, you you have this dead strip. You were saying like nine feet even down. It, yeah. it, it can be spotty here and there, or it can just be one strip. But as as you that bark is dead, and as you pull it out, you'll notice from the sides it's like a really slow lava flow as the callus tissue forms and starts to close back over that area where the bark was lost. And I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is has it completely closed over. So you can't see interior wood, or do you still see the little raised lava flows coming across the old interior wood? I can't answer that question. Okay. Well, if you have huge areas that haven't closed over, now it's going to have been two years. Um, the um, that is a little bit of concern, and you know, if I saw that it has another six inches to go or something. That, that interior wood's probably going to begin to decay, and and it, you hit a point where it's probably better in the long run to get to get a new plant. But I I sure would give every effort to see if that tree's going to make it. If you don't take some pictures and email them to garden success at t a m u dot e d u, I'll be glad to take a look at them. Just do several and make sure they're in focus. Maybe do one up close where your camera phone is you know two feet away. And uh, let me see that, and I can answer the question I just asked uh, a moment ago, uh, and and I think that'll be part of the decision. Let me see the whole tree too, so I can see what percentage okay. of the canopy is lost, and and so on. So you want to see 
um, the the bark itself. So that would be the close up picture, and then just the overall right. Tree. What you um, described is like a nine foot long strip. I want to see. Yes. I want to see parts of that. Uh, in the okay. picture, in the picture, and you can send me five pictures if you want. Uh, just, okay. uh, but I just need to, you know, how much damage is too much damage? That's not a black and white answer, right? It's it's going to be, it's going to depend, and so I'm, I'm not comfortable uh, telling yeah. you anything other than I wouldn't let it continue to grow as a bush. I don't think that's a good long-term plan. Okay, gotcha. Okay, well I'll send you the picture, and I appreciate the information. All right. And I'm, Happy to report that the, the the tree is hanging in there. Well, good, good. <laughs> okay. well, I hope thank it'll. You. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate that call in. Oh, uh, I was talking about things going on around town. Uh, by the way, our number is nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine. And if you're trying to send me something by email, it's garden success, one word, garden success at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U, garden success at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Uh, talking about things around town. So I talked about the uh, postdoc chapter on Thursday, June 1st, uh, and the uh, summer garden celebration at the Leach Teaching Garden at Texas A&M on June 3rd. Uh, on June 10th. Now, that's a little bit out there, but I want you to get it on your calendar because this is an event you're going to want to want to go to. Uh, the Brazos County Master Gardeners are having an open garden day at the Demonstration Idea Garden. We call it the DIG, Demonstration Idea Garden, and the Arboretum. There's, there's an Arboretum of trees around it. Uh, and that is Saturday, June 10th from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. The Master Gardeners are going to be there uh, to answer questions, to, you know, what plant is that? Uh, maybe you just have a gardening question about something else that you don't see at the dig. Well, they can help you with that. Uh, they're going to show you how they compost there. So if you want to learn how to compost, this is a great opportunity, almost hands-on, if you will, to uh, see what is done in that process and how it's done. There's also going to be talking about the rainwater harvesting system that we have there. Now, the dig is on Highway 21. At the, the actual number is 2619 Highway 21 in Bryan. But uh, the, another way to uh, describe it is if you are coming in on Highway 21 from Caldwell direction, you go ahead and cross over 2818, the bypass around that side of town, and uh, just after you pass over it, you know, within a quarter mile on the right, you're going to see the dig. It's a big parking lot where our office used to be, uh, and the dig is right next to it. They're going to also, uh, you can see areas like the Texas Superstars, uh, how they're doing, uh, plants that grow in shade. There's a little vegetable garden out there, an earth kind garden. Uh, just a lot of good opportunity. Of course, it's free to the public. Uh, so Saturday, June 10th, I hope you'll put that on your calendar, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. and bring the kids out. Uh, let them learn about things, too. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. And we are going to go to the phones now and talk to Bertie. Hello, Bertie. Hi, Skip. How are you? Well, I'm well, thank you. Well, my plumeria is not doing well. It just started sprouting the green leaves, and I've tried to look up the disease, and I think it's leaf miners, but I don't see anything obvious. They kind of just 
suck something out of the middle of the plant or the leaf. What What are you seeing when you look at a leaf that you're that has this problem? Well, it's uh, starting from the center. It's like they eat both sides, but you can still see through it. It's like a little, uh, I don't know. Is it but, like a little kind of uh, tannish trail, tannish white trail well, through the leaf? I looked at that, and no, it's, it's, like a, a, it's like an inch by an inch. Now, I do see a little white. Oh, now I see it. It's a little green, almost translucent caterpillar, about this half, oh, not even a fourth of an inch, real thin. All right. Do you have any chickens? <laughs> no. Okay, because I was going to make the chickens happy. Um, so you just need to, you can do a couple things. I mean, if it's just one or two on there, it's not worth buying a product and mixing it up and spraying it. Uh, but there's a product called BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, and there's another product called Spinosad that are organic. They are, their toxicity levels are lower, and uh, they will control caterpillars. Uh, the BT only controls caterpillars. And you could use those. If it were me, and it's a plant the size you're, tri you're describing, I would just take, you know, your thumb and rub it off there. If you're squeamish, just, you know, kind of scrape it off and get the caterpillar out of the area. Tiny. I mean, it's you can almost see through it. It's a little green, translucent yeah. caterpillar, yeah. but tiny, so, but weaving through the whole—not weaving. Well, yeah, it is through the whole thing. Okay. Well, it you you might there's there's several things it could be. It's possible that you're looking at soft flies if they're on the exterior uh, doing their feeding. But here's how those critters uh, uh, go. They start off with little tiny jaws because, as you described them, they're real tiny. And those little jaws can't eat through leaf veins, for example. So they just eat the spongy, soft tissues on the leaf. And then they molt and get a bigger set of jaws. And then your leaf starts to look like lace, where everything but the main, bigger vein, biggest veins are there. And then they get another set of jaws, and they can eat everything. Uh, okay. And, and so it doesn't mean they're going to make it that long. They have a lot of natural enemies that will attack them. But I, I would say if it were you, I would probably, if they're that tiny, you could even mix up an, an insecticidal soap and just a little, like a, a Windex kind of bottle, just squirt them with it. And at that stage, uh, soap even works on caterpillars. Okay. Well, they were so small, I didn't see them. They kind of blend in with yeah. the center stem of the leaf. Okay. I'll do that. In fact, I think I've got some BT. So okay. Too. Well, thank you. Appreciate right. it. You bet. Thank you for the call, Bertie. Okay. Our phone number, if you'd like to call, seven or 979-845-5689. And the email is gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. I'm going to add another event in the out and about what's going on around town. And that is on Saturday, June 3rd. The Rio Brazos Audubon Society is going to have another one of their Birding 101 bird walks. So you go out to Lick Creek Park, which is if you take Rock Prairie out east of the bypass and just keep going, you get to Lick Creek Park. Uh, this event is for new birders. You can sharpen your birding skills, learn the basics of identifying birds by sight and by the song that they sing. Uh, and if you have binoculars, bring them with you. If you don't, they usually have some loners out there. But if you just like to learn about birding, uh, this is a great opportunity. And the Rio Brazos Audubon does this pretty often. By the way, this this starts Saturday, June 3rd. Uh, 3rd. It starts at 8.30 a.m. 
So if you're interested, that is good. If you want to just find out more about the Rio Brazos Society and their activities, go to riobrazosaudubon.org. riobrazosaudubon.org. Let's see. We're going to go back. Let me go to the email here for a moment. Um, had an email uh, on... Let me, I'll tell you what, I'm going to come back to that one. It's going to take a little bit more time. Uh, so Bradley is looking, I believe, to plant a cherry tree. And he, he, he's heard that they don't very work here very well um, and that there are also some that are native here. And so what variety should he get and, and you know, what... It, what do you need to keep in mind about having success with cherries? Well, if you want a native plant, there is a native cherry to Texas here. And uh, it, it's just, you know, fine. I mean, they, they do pretty well here. Being in the prunus uh, group of fruit plants, that means it has a pit, which think about uh, apricots, plums, peaches, cherries, they all have a pit inside, not a bunch of seeds like an apple or a pear would. And so those stone fruits uh, are a whole group that really prefers good drainage. And so if they're in a low area, clay soil stays wet all the time, it's probably not going to do well for you there. But that's the native. Now the native, I, su I suspect it's edible. Uh, the berry, the cherries are a little, so small that uh, you'd have to work pretty hard to get enough of them to do anything with, but check me out on that. I don't want to tell you for sure that they're edible, but I, I think the fruit are. Um, anyway, if you're talking about a cherry that you eat, you know, you picture your maraschino cherry kind of thing. Well, they don't do well here, and we've uh, breeders have worked to develop varieties that come further south, uh, but I've yet to see one that establishes and continues on for years and years uh, of success, you know, at least five years or eight, ten years of success. Uh, so you could prove me wrong, but uh, if you are going to try to prove me wrong, I would use a, a very a nice raised planting area for excellent drainage. I would give it a full sun location. A little late day shade is fine, but at least six hours of sun in the morning is a very minimum, probably better to be around eight. Uh, and that's what I would do. Now, cherries, if I'm not mistaken, we just don't talk cherries down here much. I'm trying to think if they need a pollinator or not. I had it in my mind that they did, but I bet they're, I, I need to check that out. Uh, so, uh, Bradley, I uh, hope that helps get you on the right track. Uh, so, I don't know what else to say about the cherry attempt, but uh, hey, that's the fun thing about gardening. We are always trying to grow things that aren't from here. Now, when you do that, you also have to be prepared for a certain amount of disappointment and disillusionment because there's a reason why there aren't cherry orchards in Texas, uh, or at least in, in our area. So, anyway. Uh, let's go back to the phone here. Uh, our phone number, 979-845-5689, uh, and we're going to talk to Ed. Hello, Ed. Hi, Skip. Um, that uh, question about plumeria spurred me for further inquiry. We okay. have a new plumeria started from a seedling someone gave us. When I put it out in spring, it seemed to be intolerant of, uh, of the sun, and I'm just wondering, are are plumeria typically okay out in the Texas sun in the summertime? Yes, plumerias grow in the sun. Hawaii, they're they're in the sun. Uh, now, if if it was a young seedling, 
it may not have been ready for full sun. Uh, maybe it was started indoors under a light or even outside in, in a shady area. Uh, so it may need a little time to adapt, but uh, they, they're a full sun plant. Okay, right now it's in a pot. Uh, will it be tolerant of the cold in the winter? No. Okay. Uh, so it's a good thing to raise your plumerias in pots because they go into kind of a dormancy, leaves fall off, and you roll the pot inside and let it dry out. You don't water it. I mean, maybe put a little water in over winter if you want. But I know people that pull the, dig up the plumeria and hang them upside down in the garage and just let them stay there wow. until it's time to go back out again. Uh, you know, being a, a real fle a fleshy, thick-stemmed plant, they store a lot of their energy, carbohydrates and whatnot in there. And so they can do things. You can get away with things with a plumeria. You, you couldn't. Like if you dug a peach tree up and hung it upside down, you... <laughs> That'd be the end of it. Uh, but plumerias can do that. Uh, but don't let them have cold. They don't like cold. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. You bet. You bet. Thank you. Uh, let's see. The phone number, 979-845-5689, 845-5689. I'm going to get to another email now that I was kind of putting off a moment ago. Uh, and the question is, how do you prune a vitex? Uh, Vitex is the thing you see around town with the beautiful blue terminal blossoms on it, those blue spikes on shrubs all over town. That's Vitex. And Vitex uh, is a summer bloomer. So if something blooms in the spring, it is blooming on last year's wood and the buds formed last year. And then they went through winter and popped out in the spring. So things like a bridal wreath, uh, things like flowering quince, peach trees, pear trees, you know, fruit trees, most fruit trees. Um, th those are all, the buds are forming in late summer, mid to late summer, perhaps a little early fall. I'm, I'm really generalizing here. But uh, then that determines what you can have in terms of blooms the next year. And so we tell people don't prune those kind of things after about midsummer uh, because they need time after you prune to be able to grow a shoot and then that shoot reach a, a mature enough stage, you know, not succulent but woody, that it can actually set buds to bloom. And, and so actually I would stop pruning those in June. Uh, but th that would be the example of plants that bloom on old wood. Then we have plants that bloom on new wood and that would be an oleander a good example and a vitex another good example so you could cut them to the ground if you if you so choose just for the sake of example uh, and all the new shoots coming out in the spring would end up having blooms on the end because they bloom on new wood uh, and so vitex is that way so with vitex we don't have to worry a lot about uh, you know, when we prune it, uh, typically people prune in the winter time when the plants are dormant. It's just easier to work around them. And uh, it, it's, you know, because it's coming out on new wood, you're getting it all set up to put new growth on where you want. Uh, and Vitex would be that example. How you prune it is up to you. Uh, I have one that is, I'm working on keeping as a single trunk tree. Uh, begins branching about pocket high, uh, but it's a single trunk tree uh, like that. A lot of people's Vitex, maybe it froze all the way back one year or 
ran over it when it was little with a lawnmower or something. It they have they're a multi-stemmed bush. There's a lot of shoots coming out, and that's also okay. Just remember that you want to shape the thing uh, so that it forms the kind of plant that you want mini tree, multi-stem bush, for example, and just know that when you cut it back, you get new regrowth. And Vitex is kind of nice. You, it has this bloom on the end of the shoots, but if you look back behind a shoot that's currently the, the prettiest bloom on the plant, you're going to see two side shoots coming up, and they may already have little clusters that haven't opened yet, buds, flower bud clusters. Uh, and, and as you go down, it, it can continue to do that. So when the old one finishes, prune those out and let the next set bloom. And you can keep them blooming that way for a while. Another thing that does is Vitex is listed on a list as being invasive. Uh, and there's a lot of caveat to that word invasive. If you're out in West Texas and you get vitex around a farm pond or, you know, an old lake out in the, the brush country, uh, it can grow so thick that it's hard for livestock to get down to the water to get a drink. I mean, it, it, it can be invasive like that. I've grown it in a number of cities here in Texas, and it has not been a big invasive for me. I'll see some sprouts coming out of the flower bed here and there. Uh, we have a lot of plants that'll do that, by the way. Uh, and uh, if you were near a waterway, I would say probably don't plant it right there. But I've, I've yet to see wild, vite wild growing vitex here that's escaped. I don't doubt there's such a thing could happen. Uh, but so I prune my blooms off when they no longer look pretty. And, and that removes any seeds. So if you have any concerns about that, reseeding kind of thing. Uh, well, that's one way to do it, but it's also the way that you keep the thing blooming and looking good. Uh, so don't be afraid to cut back even further than I just described, you know, past that first bloom, because you're going to get some vigorous new shoots coming out below where you cut, and you're going to get more color on your Vitex. So that's kind of in a nutshell uh, how you prune a Vitex. I don't find, I've not ever been able to make one into a pretty tree. <laughs> they, just their growth habit I don't know how to, rangy or something like that might be a good word to describe it. Uh, but uh, just keep keep that in mind. They will get large in time. Uh, I, I didn't know Vitex got as big as they do. I went to San Antonio about a decade and a half ago and saw Vitex that were up above. There was a two-story building, and they were reaching all the way to the top of it. And uh, you just don't see that much. Uh, but they do have some intentions on getting bigger. So when you prune, don't be afraid to cut them back significantly. And don't be afraid to prune them at different times other than just the dormant winter time. Well, that's a lot about Vitex, but you see a lot around here. In fact, when I came back to Bryan College Station after years of being away, uh, I was surprised at how many Vitex there are in this town. There are, there are a lot of them, but there's a good reason. Uh, and also, just uh, something in Vitex's favor uh, is in the summertime, blooms are not as easy to come by as they are in spring in our landscapes. And the color blue in the summer is even more rare. Uh, we have some things that can blue, bloom blue in the summer, like plumbago, uh, but that vitex color, it stands out in the summertime. Now, there are other types of vitex other than the one you see around town that's purple. There are some, there's forms that have white blooms, uh, forms that have pink, kind of a 
not very impressive pink, but a pink bloom. Uh, and then there are other species, uh, Vitex, other than the Vitex, I think it's still called Agnes castus, that, that we see in landscapes. Uh, and so that would be something to keep in mind. Uh, Vitex has also been called beekeeper's friend because uh, because of when it blooms it, and the bees like it, it gives them a source of nourishment uh, during a pretty tough time of year. So that's a lot about Vitex, but anyway, that's, that's what we know. Uh, the phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess. Um, garden success at tamu.edu. Garden success at tamu.edu. Uh, I put a, a thing up. I, I wrote up a thing that uh, they put up on uh, KAMU FM website. And uh, if you go to the, uh, look, just do a search for garden success. And it's called uh, Tips for Your Lawn. Skips Tips for Your Lawn. That's hard to say. Uh, and it talks about mowing, watering, fertilizing, and weed control uh, during the summer season. And if you just like a really brief overview of that, you might want to go online to the website. I believe it's still up, uh, and uh, check check that out. Uh, let's talk about the vegetable garden. Here, and we are on the the big uh, doorstep into the brutal time of summer here, which starts in. June and continues on into almost early October, depending on the year. Uh, and so a lot of the things that did well in the spring are not going to do well right now. They're just getting wimpy. That would be pole beans and cucumbers and summer squash and uh, large fruited tomatoes not setting as well uh, here pretty soon. Uh, and so we look to things that can take the heat. And eggplant, uh, it, it really is heat tolerant. Now, this wouldn't be the best time to plant an eggplant, but you could. Uh, they're pretty heat tolerant. You just get them going, and then you would have uh, fruit uh, in the fall garden season, uh, even late summer a little bit with eggplant. Uh, the melons that uh, cantaloupe and honeydew and watermelon could be planted still at this time of the year, uh, and they would produce their fruit. You don't want to wait much longer than, oh, I don't know, I'm, I'm talking about a big group of vegetables, but I would say about mid-July would be the very absolute latest I would try to plant those uh, and still have a crop. But because when it gets into fall and the days get shorter, the temperatures cool off, uh, melons are just not going to have the growth and development rate that they would have had uh, in dur in, during melon season. Okra. Okra can take any heat that we throw at it and any humidity that we throw at it. Uh, prime time right now for planting okra. Southern peas, which include black-eyed peas, purple hull peas, sugar, not sugar snap, no, no, no. Black-eyed peas, purple hull peas, crowder, pink eye, I'm forgetting one that I usually say. Anyway, those peas are, can be planted on into July for sure. Uh, pepper transplants can be set out. Don't expect much production on them through the heat of summer, uh, but they will then produce for you as we move into the end of summer and fall. You will get some production off of those. Uh, the uh, sweet potatoes. This is sweet potato season. If you can find slips available at a local garden center, uh, go for it. If you can't and you got a neighbor that's got some sweet potatoes, you can cut you some slips off of that and take them home and plant them uh, as well. Uh, and then the winter squashes. That would be things like pumpkins and butternut and spaghetti squash. Uh, there's many other winter squashes. Acorn squash would be another example. Kabocha. 
they can take the heat and they will it takes them a long time some of those can take you know 120 days some of the pumpkins can take 120 days to actually reach maturity uh, most of the others are much much faster than that uh, but the thing you want to watch out for on those the thing that spoils the show for us is because we're such a humid area the powdery mildew fungus will just destroy the foliage and you need that green leaf to make carbohydrates to support the development of blooms and the development of fruit especially. It takes a lot of carbohydrates to make a pumpkin. And so you need to protect the foliage and uh, there's different ways to go about it but uh, whatever you choose, whichever fungicide approach you take, uh, you need to keep them periodically sprayed so that powdery mildew and some other foliage diseases don't have a chance to develop because when they take away the food factories of the plant, that's the green leaves. When they take that away, the, the plant cannot make what it needs to give us the fruit that we're growing, the growing the plant for ourselves. One other thing, uh, some of the summer greens, lots of good summer greens for us here. I, in fact, if you, rather than me try and name them all, do this. If you go to Aggie Horticulture Facebook Live, I've been meaning to tell you all about that again. It's been a little while since I mentioned it. Aggie Horticulture Facebook Live. You go to the Aggie Horticulture Facebook website and uh, look for the past videos. You can watch the past videos that we've been doing for uh, a couple of, two or three years now. And the, um, uh, the, every Wednesday and Thursday, another video is put up there to watch. Uh, but it's a really good source of information. They're not very long. Some of our originals lasted a while, but these now are, are, are a little bit shorter in general. Uh, Dr. Larry Stein does a video, uh, kind of a checklist on what to do in May and coming up, what to do in June and so on. Uh, and so those are really helpful. Last, it's a week or two ago, I can't remember when it was aired, uh, I did one on summer vegetables. And I talked about the greens, especially the greens, they can take the heat in the summertime. Uh, and uh, that's about a 10 minute video that you could watch and you can learn about a lot of different kinds of greens that maybe you hadn't even thought of growing here. So even though summer takes out all of our traditional familiar vegetables, or let me say all of them, 80% or more of our traditional vegetables, that there are vegetables that can be grown in your summer garden, if you'll water it, can be just as productive as any other time of the year. It's just a different uh, kind of plant, and it gives you a chance to expand your, your uh, tastes and preferences a little bit. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but if you spent your whole life growing up in Texas, and you probably uh, are very familiar with cucumbers and squash and tomatoes and all the traditional, maybe lettuce and the cool season crops. If you came from a part of the world that has a different climate, there are going to be other vegetables that are probably um, more important in, in the vegetable gardens in those areas. But if that, if that area is hot and humid, such as uh, parts of Africa, uh, Middle East, parts of the Middle East, and, and so on, there's going to be a whole new kind of vegetables, but they're going to do well here, most of them, because we have a very similar climate. And uh, these kind of vegetables, are they are like uh, black-eyed peas, uh, southern peas, they're from Africa, and uh, they just are very happy in a hot, humid climate. They do really well. So I would encourage you to expand your, your taste buds. Uh, I have been working on 
trying out just about every Asian green I can find or Asian vegetable that I can find because there is a wide variety of those. Uh, a lot of them, the majority I would say, are, are going to be cool season vegetables. But uh, anyway, we need to try those kind of things. I think it's I think it's good to expand our taste buds a little bit. Uh, our phone number is 979-845-5689. We've got about five minutes left in the show today. If you'd like to call in, and the email is gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. In the summer, the landscapes can get looking kind of blah. Uh, the way I put it is our landscapes become a sea of green in the summer. Green grass, green ground covers, green shrubs, green trees. Uh, you get the idea. But we have blooming plants that do well in the summer. And I've talked about the one that's generically, I guess, called summer snapdragon. Uh, it's angelonia is the proper name of it. Uh, that just takes summer well. And you'll see them driving around town. You may not know what they look like, but uh, they're used widely in our landscapes here in the Bryan College Station area. Uh, Angelonia is a good heat-tolerant plant, but we have others. I mentioned plumeria earlier. Plumeria is a perennial, kind of a shrub, but often can be killed back and then come back again. Uh, very light baby blue or sky blue uh, flowers. Uh, there's a white form of it as well. It can it can take the heat uh, quite well. Uh, many, many, many others. I'm going to start naming them now and forget about half of them. Uh, but another one that I enjoy uh, growing in the summer season is uh, zinnias. There are zinnias that make tall cut flowers. There are zinnias that make short mounding plants. Uh, my favorite group of plants of all is the salvias. Uh, the salvias offer us so many options, from annual salvias to perennial salvias, and I'm a little, I'm a little bit, um, per, um, what, prejudiced toward the perennial salvias. There's the um, Greg sage, which is uh, one of the more common ones that you see around town. Uh, Salvia gregii. Uh, it's also called cherry sage. Uh, Red is the most common color, but not by any means the only color. Uh, now, uh, and sometimes it's called autumn sage, and I hate that name for it because it makes you think it blooms only in the autumn, and that's not that's not the case. Salvia uh, farinacea is a native Texas sage called mealy blue sage. There are a couple of varieties that one of our AgriLife Extension horticulturists found and are really popular in the trade of varieties of salvia farinacea, or they may be slight crosses. We really don't, I, I really don't know right now, but uh, they that's a very dependable uh, blue blooming, again, uh, summer plant. The uh, salvia leucantha blooms in the fall, but now would be a good time to plant some and get ready for fall, because when we get to late summer and fall and the days get shorter, salvia leucantha, called Mexican bush sage, starts to send up the long purple spikes uh, with either purple or white uh, throats inside the, the blooms, uh, or actually blooms themselves. Uh, those are super dependable and super uh, excellent. Another group of salvias, or the Salvia Garnetica. And Salvia Garnetica, gosh, there's so many varieties now. There's one that has something like Rockin' the Blues, I believe. Um, 
and now I can't think of all the, the different varieties of Savia garnitica. Amistad is another one. Uh, there's Argentine Skies that is actually light blue colored, but because most Salvia garniticas are somewhere in between blue and purple. Uh, and, you know, the range is in there. Some of them are very dark. They grow in part shade, and on these Salvias, the hummingbirds love them, so it would be another reason to grow them. Uh, but salvia is a very dependable, very good, tough, summer tough plant. Then we got our hibiscus. Uh, there's the tropical hibiscus that unless you put it in a container and roll it into the garage, it's a one-shot wonder, uh, one, one year and then it's gone. Uh, but the hibiscus that is perennial, uh, it's, it's native along the southern Gulf Coast, and that one just does really well here. We have varieties like Moy Grande and Flare, for example. Lots and lots of new varieties, some of them now being developed that only get a couple of feet high, a very bushy plant. But I could probably spend a whole show just talking about plants that can take the summer heat, and we've just touched on a handful here. Uh, but that, uh, let me throw one more real, real quick one in, uh, and that's Gara. Gara, there's a native Gara, but one called Whirling Butterflies, and then there's some other good varieties of Gara that can take the heat as well. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success, and I hope that you will tell your friends about Garden Success. I got an email about someone who heard from a friend, and so I assigned them the task of going and telling two more friends. So let your friends know about the show. Let them know that it's available by podcast on KAMU-FM on the website. And we're going to be looking forward to visiting with you again next Thursday from 12 to 1. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.